When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to Mom and Dad are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast for Thursday, June 23rd, the tale of Two Cities edition. I'm Allison Benedict, an editor at Slate and the mom of Harry 7, Sam 5, and Wally 3. Dan is actually out this week, so filling in for him is my buddy and an ed- also an editor at Slate and the author of Break in Case of Emergency, a new and terrific novel that everyone should buy out July 12th, Jessica Winter. Hello, I'm Jessica, and I'm the mom of Devin, who is 19 months old. Uh, on today's show, we will interview New York Times Magazine writer Nicole Hannah-Jones about her latest piece, Choosing a School for My Daughter in a Segregated City, and about school segregation more broadly. Then Jessica will tell us about the parenting challenges she is facing as the mother of a newly minted, difficult toddler, and we will discuss. Also, Parenting Triumphs and Fails, a listener call about political differences between a father and son, and recommendations. And for our Slate Plus segment, uh, Slate designer Derek Johnson, who came on the show for our Slate Plus segment maybe two months ago. Anyway, he's coming back to tell us all about how he and his wife's planned hypnobirth worked out. Can't wait to hear all about that one. Uh, I have no announcements this week other than to say, like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash mom and dad are fighting. So let's move on to triumphs and fails. Jessica. I feel sheepish calling this a triumph. It's more like a nice thing that happened. But every time I've ever been on the show, I've had a fail. So I decided to have a triumph. We have recently fallen into a rhythm with Devin where every four to six weeks she has a sleepover or a long weekend with her aunt who lives about 90 minutes away by train. And it's so great. Um, My sister doesn't have kids, but she's really embraced the auntie role. And my parents often come in to help. And Devin seems to have a really wonderful time. Um, My sister is also a trained chef, so I know the kid eats exponentially better there than she does at home. And ostensibly, I'm supposed to be using all that extra free time to work on my second book. And I usually achieve this. But this past Saturday, when Devin was with her auntie, instead of writing, I binged this seven-hour-long OJ documentary, which I suppose was a different kind of achievement. So this is great. It's been a great development for Devin to spend more time with her extended family. It's great to have the support, and I feel very fortunate. 
Uh, as you know, I definitely consider that a triumph, and it also makes me insanely jealous. Uh, but I'm very happy for you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's sort of a similar feeling that I have when Dan usually talks about his triumph. <laughs> That's great. That's really great for you. Hi, Dan. <laughs> um, well, I also have a triumph this week. It's not exactly. Mine's a little oh, awesome. Mine's a little sad, uh, but I still think it's a triumph. Um, So the other day I was driving Harry to speech therapy, and we were talking about how the school year was coming to an end. And I said something like, I can't believe you're almost done with second grade. I'm so proud of you for having such a great year. And he said, like, very, like, flatly from the back seat, well, the first three or four months weren't that great because I used to sit alone on a bench during recess with all the other lonely kids. And I, I mean, my whole, like, every, you know, my body just, like, sunk and it took, like, every uh, every bit of everything for me not to, like, slam on the brakes and climb in the back and hug him. Uh, but somehow, instead of showing him how sick I felt to hear that, I kept it calm and I just said, like, that must have been really hard, Harry. And he said, I didn't tell you about it at the time, but everything's fine now. And my instinct uh, I think it's partly my personality, but probably also any parent's instinct would be to really probe and to, as they say, interview for pain uh, to find out exactly what it was like and how it's different now and make sure he's OK now. Uh, but I could tell that he was like he wanted to be done with it. He had told me for whatever reason he had never told me before. Um, and so I just kind of I told him, you know, that it's OK that he didn't tell me. He can always tell me if anything is going on, and I'm proud of him no matter what's happening. Um, and then I basically let it go. I gave him a rub on the back when we got out of the car because he doesn't like hugs, and that was it. So I think it seems probably like a weird triumph. Um, I didn't make a bad situation worse for my kid. Good job. But I <laughs> could see how that conversation could have gone another way that might have been more informational for me but way more stressful for him, and I'm glad I held back. This no, time. I think that's that's a total triumph. You resisted urges that you knew were counterproductive in the moment. You thought on your feet. You showed him support. You found out that he trusts you and you know will come to you with stuff when he needs to at the time that he feels is right. I, that, that's a it's a quiet triumph, triumph, but a triumph nonetheless. Is that a term of art? Interview for pain. I've never heard that before. I think no, I didn't come up with that. I actually think some there's like a book about that. My, a friend of mine told me once, like, don't interview for pain. But I think she got it. Adina, where did you get it from? She got it from someone else, unless she came up with that. And if she did, she should be writing a book. But uh, but it's so true. Like that's like a thing that I almost do every day probably like when I'm asking how was camp I'm really asking like did anything horrible happen at camp were you left out or like you know uh, and it's not a good way to be I'm guessing it's pretty common but actually I would like to hear from listeners on that like if that's their impulse and they hold back yeah I wonder how you gauge that like when do you need the information and when do you just let it go but this this seemed like a good moment to let it go thank you Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, on to our first segment. 
Journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones has spent the past several years reporting on and writing about school segregation. In her extremely important This American Life episode from last year, The Problem We All Live With, she called school integration the one thing that we are not really talking about that could actually improve schools. And yet, there is no real movement for it. And all over the country, unequal education persists, doing long-term damage to our kids and our communities. Most recently, Nicole experienced the problem at home when she found herself at the center of a school rezoning fight in Brooklyn between her daughter's mostly black and Latino low-income school and a rich, mostly white school nearby. So she wrote about it. Her piece, Choosing a School for My Daughter in a Segregated City, appeared in the New York Times Magazine a few weeks ago and is well worth your time. We've had it posted on our Facebook page for a while now. Nicole is here today to talk about the piece and the problem of school segregation. Hi, Nicole. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So you've been writing and reporting about this issue for a long time, but I imagine it's different to write about things you believe in and to actually live those values. And you grapple with this in your recent piece. Can you talk a little bit about your family's experience choosing a school? Sure. I mean, I've been, my very first job out of uh journalism school was to cover schools in a very segregated school district. So I've been writing about school segregation for more than a decade. But it is very different being a reporter who writes about it and then being a parent who is now having to navigate selecting a school for your child in a segregated system. So I had known, like many parents, that I was planning to live my values when I enrolled my child in school. But as we know, that can be a very difficult thing when it actually comes time to enroll your child in schools. And we have the third most segregated large school system in the country, and there's a great deal of disparity between schools. And I live in a segregated low-income neighborhood, so my neighborhood schools are a reflection of that. So I knew that I was going to enroll my daughter in a school that was segregated and that was also low income because I, I did believe that if all of us who are middle class and all of those who have resources and choice continue to avoid these schools and we're upholding the system, the problem is I had to break that news to my husband who also believed, like many people, in public education and um, believed in the public good, but like many parents, was very afraid of how it might harm our daughter if we were to put her in a segregated school because, as we know, those schools tend to get the worst uh, resources and typically are not providing the same education as other schools. So we had Lots of discussions, uh, sometimes heated, sometimes arguments about what to do. We were both trying to do the right thing, but it's very hard when it comes to your, your own child. And ultimately, I convinced him to visit a couple of our neighborhood schools. and We visited one school that was outside of our neighborhood that had just gotten a magnet to try to bring middle-class parents in. And once we did that, I, my husband thinking really started to shift, and he realized that these kids were, of course, no different than ours and deserved no less than our daughter deserved, and we ultimately decided to enroll her in one of those schools. And can you tell our listeners a little bit about what happened then? You had a positive experience at that school, but the, the rezoning battle. Right. So we enrolled our daughter in the school. We were very pleased with her experience at the school. And about a year in, we find out that our school, which was under-enrolled, which is quite typical for segregated schools, was going to be possibly rezoned to bring in a lot of the neighbors, 
So basically, our school had a very small attendance zone. It was drawn around a, a public housing project, but it's in the Dumbo Vinegar Hill neighborhood of Brooklyn, which had gentrified heavily and now had a very large, uh, white, wealthy population. But those kids were all zoned to another school in Brooklyn Heights called PS8, and that school was bursting at the seams. It was overcrowded to the point that it had to deny entry uh, to parents who had applied to go there. So we found out that there was a proposed rezoning that would send a lot of those kids to our school. And, of course, uh, those parents who had bought their homes expecting to go to this very white affluent school were not happy to learn that they were now going to be rezoned into a heavily black and Latino and very poor school. So a battle ensues. There are meetings. There are people who are going to the press and say very ugly things about my daughter's school and uh, the community that the school served. And my daughter's school, the parents were very concerned that about the way that their children were being described and that, as often happens in New York City, once a school is targeted for white parents to come in, the school quickly gentrifies. And this was one of the few schools that was working for low-income kids, and, and there was a lot of fear that their children would lose out. You know, one of the things that is so mystifying to me about these sorts of rezoning battles, or actually maybe it's not mystifying at all, is how unbelievably overcrowded the the wealthy, predominantly white schools tend to be at the heart of these battles. There's this, a very similar battle playing out right now, Nicole, that I think you've tweeted about a little bit on the Upper West Side, right. where they want to relocate a completely and utterly overcrowded school 15 blocks south and combine it with a school that's currently servicing children who are, are largely in public housing. And this this school does not have the, the, the rich, predominantly white school. It doesn't have an, a dedicated auditorium or cafeteria or library. And these facilities that they're going to be moving into are going to be much better. And the, the parents are still fighting tooth and nail for, for this not to happen. And it just it just seems to me to be pretty blatant racism. Um, and I don't know if that's too, too coarse a, a way of looking at it or if it's more nuanced than that. I mean, clearly, it's, it's, it is not about all the things that parents say it's about, because parents do not will, willingly subject their children to overcrowded schools. Parents typically want all of these amenities for their kids. But what these battles show, because this is also what happened at PSA, they lost their dedicated art room. Um, they lost their pre-K. They were using the, the auditorium as a storage area. At some point, there had been trailers. None of these things are things that, that parents want. But they will put up with them in order to have the race and class makeup that they're looking for. And I don't think we want to talk openly about that, but clearly that is the issue. And what I find so fascinating about this is, is this belief that I have bought into, I have a right to this school, and the school system needs to respect that right. The school system's job is not to, you know, validate your property decisions. It is to provide the best educational experience that it can for children, and it is to rezone when a school gets overcrowded. This is the most typical thing that school systems do is they have to move around students to fill empty schools and to relieve crowding in other schools. But when you're dealing with this kind of combustible mix of race and class, then logic no longer applies. So parents will say, well, as they did in PSA, 
put more kids in the classroom. Sure, there's already 28 kids in a classroom, but why can't you put 35 kids in a classroom? These are things parents never want. They want smaller class sizes. They want more amenities, but they will sacrifice all of these things because their racial and class fears outweigh the, the desire to have other benefits. So a few years ago, I wrote a piece for Slate imploring all parents to send their kids to public school, um, just arguing that that's the only way for schools to get better if you stop thinking only about your own child. But I kind of regret the piece now, not because it was judgmental of parents who send their kids to private school, but because it did not at all grapple with... the judging was fine. (laughs) The judging was fine. I never regret that. But it didn't grapple with the real issue. Like, if we all sent our kids to our local public schools, that wouldn't be enough. And in many ways, it perpetuates the problem uh, because of housing segregation. And I I wonder if the the popularity of the concept of the neighborhood school, that school that your kid can walk to with neighbor friends, has made things worse. So, one, I think, I mean, private schools are clearly part of the problem. They're, They're... well, I don't want to say part of the problem, but when you look at the demographics of the school district, it's clear that a lot of parent, white parents are opting out of public schools in general. And so that makes the racial imbalance even harder to deal with. But I think we should also uh, realize that neighborhood schools, the concept of neighborhood schools in a segregated city is driving some of the segregation, but not all. PS307 was a neighborhood school of the, of the white parents who were being rezoned to that school. Many of them lived literally across the street from the school. They did not want their neighborhood school because neighborhood schools work when the neighborhood school reflects the demographics of your neighborhood and that you want. When neighborhood schools don't reflect the demographics of what these parents want, parents don't want neighborhood schools. So these parents would rather send their kids a mile away to PS8 because demographically that's what they wanted. They had no interest in their neighborhood school, and many of them had never stepped foot in the neighborhood school. So I think neighborhood schools become convenient in a very residentially segregated uh, city, but they're not the answer. I live in Bedford-Stuyvesant, which as we know, is undergoing rapid gentrification, but the schools have not gentrified at all. And in fact, there's a group of white parents who have moved into the neighborhood who are having meetings to try to figure out, do they open a charter school for their kids? Is there one school that they can target to kind of take over? So there was actually a recent study that showed that neighborhood segregation is not the only contributor and that even in these gentrifying areas, you're not seeing the schools reflect that. So basically, you know, race and uh, the racial hierarchy in schools is upheld no matter what the -the on-the-ground circumstances are. And if you look at our city after um, elementary school, we don't have a neighborhood school, right? Everyone can apply to go to schools all across the city, yet those schools are still heavily segregated as well. Nicole, in your New York Times Magazine piece, the word experiment comes up a few times in in a really interesting way. Your husband at one point asks... Is our dedication to public schools, does that mean that we're experimenting with our daughter's education? And then another parent that you interview close to the end of the piece says something like, my child is not an experiment. Right. Um, and I wondered, it, it's, I, I guess it's compelling on the face of it to say, my child is not an experiment. I, I, I can't single-handedly integrate schools, but I can single-handedly ensure a, a good, a quote-unquote good school situation for them. What, what would you say to, to, to those parents? So experiment is such an interesting use of a word, right? I mean, what are we saying when we say that my child is not an experiment? When we're putting that in the context of sending our child into a school where a lot of other parents don't have a choice, 
I think what I say to that is, I don't know what you mean. <laughs> I know what you mean, but what is the experiment that's happening that we're, we're testing out some theory about the public good on the backs of our children? I mean, is that basically what we're saying? This theory that integration is an experiment, that's, but that segregation was not, right. um, that integration is kind of socially engineered and contrived, but segregation is not. And I think that speaks to why I always include so much history in my work is to show, because we somehow believe that efforts to integrate, like, you know, that's not natural. We're forcing people to do what they don't want to do. We're we're engineering something that is not natural. But what we don't want to acknowledge is that the reason we have this level of segregation and inequality in the first place is because a great deal of effort and experimentation and social engineering went into creating that. I don't feel like I am experimenting with my child for some larger social good. I think I am enrolling her in a public school and she's going to get the public education that most of the kids in the city get, for good or for bad. But it certainly raises the stakes then if I'm putting my child in a school where she's going to get the same education that most kids get, it raises the stakes on how willing I am to try to fight to make that education better. If I'm putting my child in a public school where she's getting an education far superior to what most of the kids in the city get, I don't too much care about what most of the kids in the city get because my child's going to be just fine. But then don't don't brag about embracing the notion of public schools because the public is in public schools is about the public good. And I think that those are two conflicting values, the securing every possible advantage for my own child in a free public system is really uh, in defiance of what a public system is supposed to be, which is that no matter where you came from, no matter what kinds of parents or wealth you have, we will all get the same education in this, in this public sphere. And that's, you know, that has been completely corrupted. And this notion of experimentation, this derives directly from the language um, that comes out after Brown v. Board is passed and the resistance to Brown. Right, that comes from that, and it's fascinating. I mean, I, I intentionally put my husband saying that at the top as a black middle class parent, and then a white middle class parent saying that same thing at the bottom because I, I think it shows that this language has really seeped into how we think about these things. No matter what your race is, if you've reached a certain class status, we have adopted this this language of resistance to desegregation. I think the the conversation you're talking about as well kind of creates a false choice. There's a choice between sending your child to a quote unquote good school versus sending your child to a school that is truly integrated and an integrated school is a good school. Right. You know, you know, if a child is going to a segregated school, even if it's a white wealthy school, it is by definition not a quote unquote good school. Except we don't think about it that way. Yeah. Because what we what we need to be honest about is Good schools and bad schools are completely racialized terms. And when we say good school, we have a certain image in our mind of what the kids in the classroom look like. And when we say bad school, we're never in our minds thinking about a school full of white kids. So we can't talk about good and bad schools without acknowledging that good and bad schools is racial code. And what's so interesting, when PSA was first starting to gentrify, its test scores were terrible, um, but white parents were starting to come, and so white parents began to say, this is a good school. It wasn't because of the test scores. It was because of who was now sending their kids to that school, 
And my daughter's school, which if anyone actually comes into the school, looks at the teaching happening in the classroom, looks at the nurturing environment, despite its test scores, it's clearly a good school. But I don't think um, we ever describe schools where almost every kid is black and Latino and it has a lot of poverty as a good school. That's not the image that comes up in anyone's head, and that's not how parents are making decisions. I mean, I, I point to research my story about how when social scientists were looking at how white parents were making school choices, they said they cared about test scores, but really the racial makeup of the school outweighed the test scores of the school. That was the most important thing. And Though people look at the free lunch numbers. Yeah. Right. And I don't even know that they're looking at free lunch numbers. What the, what the research is showing is that race, particularly percent black, is having the largest influence. I listened to your interview on the Longform podcast, and you talked about being in these meetings with white parents who were against the rezoning, and they would come up to you and say how moved they were by yeah. your, your <laughs> This American Life episode. How do you, like, what is, what is that about? <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, Missouri is still kind of seen as, as over there, down, almost in the South, a little backwards, maybe redneck. Um, and so I think it was very easy to, like, hear parents in Missouri, some of them with a little bit of a twang in their voice say these things and feel a distance from that. You know, that's not me. That's them. I'm so appalled. Um, this is one of the reasons I really, I didn't know initially I was going to do a story about this battle involving my daughter's school, but it's one of the reasons I was determined to write some school segregation story out of New York City because, you know, progressives in the North, just ignore so much inequality because they feel like they're well-meaning. And, like, the inequality here, of course, is, like, not intentional because we're not opposed to integration. Yet it doesn't really matter what the intent is. If if the facts on the ground, I mean, a a segregated school in the Bronx looks no different than a segregated school in Tuscaloosa, and it operates exactly the same. So it doesn't really matter. But I think there's this disconnect. And, And the reason this story that I just wrote touched such a nerve was because it was, you know, clearly calling out white liberals in a very liberal city in a way that I, I, I don't think we're used to when we're writing about issues of race and, and inequality. So how do the facts on the ground change? Like, are, th- are there concrete things that have to happen at the, you know, federal, state, district level? Or is it really like at the household level? You know, I, I think this belief that these systemic issues are going to be solved by individual choices is, it's convenient for politicians who can just say, there's nothing we can do, you know, it has to be a grassroots effort, but it's never been a grassroots effort. I mean, Brown v. Board is coming down from the Supreme Court. Uh, the decision to start enforcing desegregation law is coming from Congress, it's coming from Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, we're going to have to see, of course, grassroots efforts to help parents figure out how to do this and understand that this is important. But you're going to have, there has to be leadership at the city level. You know, we have a mayor who ran on a tale of two cities, Mayor de Blasio, who will not touch this issue. Uh, the key to all other inequality, which is housing and schools, and he will not touch the schools issue. And you have a very liberal presidential administration that until recently uh, wouldn't touch the issue either. So I think clearly the courts have, have limited what you can do in terms of ordering uh, desegregation, but there's still a lot that, that can be done. We just haven't had any leadership around this for decades. We, we have really tried to make separate but equal work. And my really unemotional 
look at the facts and the data show that every reform effort we tried has, has not worked. And we're either going to decide as our country school children reach a tipping point of being more than half um, pub- of public school children being black and Latino, we're either going to continue to undereducate, which will be the majority of our school-age population, to the detriment of our entire nation, or we're going to, we're going to have to decide to solve this and really believe in the, in the public part of public schools. Okay, Nicole Hannah-Jones, her piece is uh, called Choosing a School for My Daughter in a Segregated City. You should read it. You should also listen to her This American Life episode and read her previous work in ProPublica. Nicole, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, on to our listener call. Every week we take a listener call and try to answer it. Got questions? Call us at 424-255-7833. We want to hear from you. This week we have a call from Sam, and here to help us answer it is my father-in-law, Tim Cook. Hi, Tim. Hi, Allison. How are you doing? I am good. How are you? I'm excited. Okay, so we're going to play this call from Sam, and then I will explain why we asked you to help us answer this. I have a multi-generational parenting question for Dan and Allison. So this past week, I learned that my father is voting for Trump. My father is a conservative Christian Republican who had in the past supported uh, the likes of uh, Cruz. I hope that his Christian faith would buttress him against Trump's appeal of white male identity politics. Um, I believe Trump is an unprecedented threat to the American Republic. At best, a fraud and a charlatan, and at worst, a proto-fascist. But if I'm true to these beliefs uh, and these views, is it appropriate to distance myself from my father? And perhaps most importantly, should I think about reconsidering my father's relationship with my two-year-old daughter, whom he loves and adores? After all, most of my fears about Trump revolve around the nation that she would come of age in if, God forbid, Trump were elected. Am I being overly dramatic here, uh, Mom and Dad? I'd welcome any thoughts. Thanks again. Okay, so the reason I asked my father-in-law on is because uh, I'm going to describe you, and you can tell me if I'm if I'm off here. Uh, my father-in-law Tim is also a Christian conservative, and he is a longtime Republican. And I am not quite positive if he's still voting for Trump, but last I checked, he was voting for Trump, and I thought he might uh, have a reaction to this question before Jessica and I kind of weigh in. And I let you know, Tim, that we are soon to be estranged. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a threat? <laughs> well, listen, uh, first of all, uh, your description of me is, is uh, accurate. The only uh, uh, place that I have any uh, raised eyebrows at all is uh, the generality of, of Christian conservative, because that, that covers a lot of territory. And uh, if we had a long time and uh, we're sitting in a bar, uh, I'd probably distinguish myself from some Christian conservatives, but uh, happily embrace uh, most Christian conservatives. Uh, but I am a Republican. Uh, the first presidential candidate I voted for was Barry Goldwater, and the only time I ever not did not vote Republican was uh, in 1992 when I voted for uh, uh, what's his name, the guy who ran as an independent. Ross uh, Perot. And I, yeah, Perot, right? And I and I helped uh, helped elect uh, Bill Clinton. So uh, um, uh, shame on me. But uh, am I still voting for Trump? I don't see any other option, uh, because in my mind, whatever Trump does or doesn't do, Hillary would be worse. That said, I, I perfectly, well, perfectly, now that's too much, but I, I, I understand Sam's dilemma. But my response to him has much, much less to do with politics and the candidates than it has to do with family. And my strong, strong urging to Sam would be, 
to not separate himself from his mom and dad just because they vote for a candidate that he finds repulsive. At its worst, from his perspective, you got eight years. But to destroy the family relationship forever is a, is a, is a, uh, an error of, of huge magnitude. And it's not just his own uh, satisfying his own uh, attitude about what's right or wrong in, the, in, in terms of the candidate, but it also is taking away his, his beautiful and beloved granddaughter's opportunity to get to know and spend time with and, and learn from uh, the, her grandparents. And I don't just mean his Christian conservatism. There's so much more to learn from grandparents than politics or faith. So I would urge him strongly, strongly, strongly to not follow that instinct. I understand it. I get it. But don't do it, Sam. You know, Tim, we are on completely opposite sides of the political spectrum, and I 100% agree with everything that you're saying right now. I, I, I usually think that people who say, let's keep politics out of it are wrong because politics is in everything, like everything we do is political. But I do make an exception for the family sphere. I completely agree with you that whatever strong political feelings Sam has, and I share all of those feelings with him. It is not worth him disrupting or destroying his daughter's relationship with her grandparents. That's a sacred thing, and it needs to transcend this kind of awful political moment we're in right now. So I'm I'm with you all the way. Also, more practically, it doesn't change anything. Exactly. Like, were he if he were to pull you know pull away from his parents, and that would somehow change the course of this election, maybe I would somehow feel more sympathetic to that um, to that option. But it's not going to change anything. And so to ruin both the country and your family unit <laughs> before the country explodes, <laughs> horrible war and devastation seems sad, just unnecessary. <laughs> oh, Allison, you're wonderful. I love that. <laughs> okay, thank you for helping us to answer. I just want to say, I want to have the last word here. There is another option. <laughs> there is another option. Love you, but I love you. Thank you, my dear. Love Bye. you, too. Bye-bye. <laughs> Okay, if you have questions for my father-in-law or other members of my family uh, or just for me and Jessica and Dan, call us, 424-255-7833. Okay, on to our second segment. It might happen gradually over weeks or months, or the switch might flip in one day, but you know it when it happens. Your cheerful, compliant baby has turned into a full-blown toddler rampaging toward the terrible twos. Since I'm subbing for Dan today and I'm the owner-operator of a 19-month-old, Allison wanted us to do a toddler segment, which I'm just going to turn into me interrogating Allison for advice since she has seen three energetic boys through their toddler years with flying colors. Allison, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you for having me. (laughs) So you described Devin as a difficult toddler uh, at the top of the show. I I, Maybe I'm just being a protective parent, but I just think of her as a toddler. Like everything she's doing at the moment is developmentally appropriate, according to everything I've read. But. Okay, well, I don't know. I wasn't specific. I wasn't like, she is a more difficult toddler than everybody. All toddlers are difficult. That wasn't that wasn't a targeted assault. But no, there are definitely things happening the last few weeks or so, and especially this past weekend, that, that we seem to be moving into a different era of her life. 
So did you have a general parenting philosophy or like guidelines drawn up in your head as you entered the toddler phase with your three kids? Like were there things that you learned with Harry and Sam that you later applied to Sam or Wally or – I think the main thing I learned was or understood was like to be less freaked out about it. Like I think with Harry, um, Harry's, Harry had pretty terrible tantrum. So um, and I realized later on that that was not the norm or my other two kids didn't do the same thing. But they used to really upset me and his like, you know, his kind of freak out behavior about like you know he wants the apple cut in half and then you cut it in half and no he oh my god why did you cut the apple in half and then you try to like put the apple back together and you're just like (laughs) desperately trying to please this unpleasable child Uh, I think that used to really get me worked up I was not one of those like I I remember I was in a mom like in mom's email group and people used to talk about like just sort of sitting on the floor next to their kid while their kid would have a toddler I mean would have a tantrum and just like waiting it out. And I couldn't do that. I was like, I was pretty upset by it. So I think just in time, I've learned not to sweat it or like had less ability to sweat it because I was busy dealing with the other kids. And I'm much quicker now. I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I'm much quicker now when Wally starts to just be like, uh uh-uh. like go up to your room until you're done. When you're done, I'll like, you can come down, but like, I'm not going to have that happening in the middle of my living room and I'm not going to sit here with you, with you when it does. I don't know if that's good parenting. <laughs> no, it sounds like good parenting. It also sounds like a hot tip is just have more kids. <laughs> care less. <laughs> so you can't let... <laughs> that's how you care less. <laughs> right, I'll get right on that. Um, okay, so you said that a switch flipped recently. What are the specific behaviors? What have you been seeing in the past few weeks from Devin? So the hitting and the pushing and the kicking definitely stepped up all of a sudden. Um, She's been kicking me pretty hard when I change her diaper. Um, She has this just diabolical thing where she puts her hand on my face. And at first it's this like loving, caressing motion. And then it like gradually becomes more and more and more pressure. And then I realize she's actually hitting me. (laughs) And I never know when it quite tips into violence. She's been throwing heavy things at the cat. Um, she has this like metal container of markers that she just like flings at the cat and I'm worried something bad is going to happen. Um, she started taking off her diaper, some laying down on the sidewalk, like in the middle of the street and just like refusing to move and screaming, um, have happened lately, which I, I know is like a total mainstay, like 100% of parents have, 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 uh, dis- experienced that. There's also, I think, and this is literally like in the last few days, there's, there's this kind of, generalized defiance for the sake of defiance. Like an example is all of a sudden a couple of days ago, she started fighting me so hard on putting her in her high chair for breakfast. Breakfast is Devin's favorite thing. It's like the best thing in the world. She loves breakfast. And she has no objections to her high chair or to breakfast or the kitchen or to NPR playing in the background. But for some reason, just on principle, she wants to she wants to rebel against going into the high chair, even though five minutes later, once she's settled, she's she's fine. So there's there's some of that. But the the intensity, the volume on this has just like gone way up all all of a sudden. So I felt like, you know, some some boundary had been crossed. Uh, does she respond to I, I'm just I'm remembering like and Wally sometimes still does this, like the hitting, especially when I would get mad about the hitting. Um, they liked that. Like it's kind of sadistic. Like he, they would laugh if I would get mad, which makes you even more mad, right? Like that makes me like actually mad. Like what? Like is, is that happening yet? Or does she respond? Does she respond to you being like no, no hitting? 
Um, yeah, there's there's some laughter sometimes. I mean, she definitely does the thing where, you know, she I, I've just made her pasta for dinner and she picks up the bowl, pours it onto the floor and then looks up at me. It gives me that kind of side eye reaction like what, you know, how are you going to react to this? What am I? And so, yeah, it's definitely she's on stage and she's, you know, waiting for her audience to respond for sure. And the the way I've divided in my head, and you can tell me whether or not this is good parenting, if she does something extremely annoying, like throwing her pasta on the floor, but that doesn't hurt anyone or couldn't harm her, then I just ignore it. I don't react. I turn, I literally turn away from her so she can't see my face and I just clean it up, like no response, move on like nothing's happened. If she throws something at the cat or if she like slaps me or something, that's a timeout. And timeout just involves, you know, taking your, putting her in her crib, removing the million stuffed animals from her crib and just, you know, leaving their, her there for a while. And I don't, I don't really know what the purpose of the timeout is other than just to announce that you did a bad thing, kid. Like it hasn't conditioned her in any way. It doesn't really give me any kind of break because like she's bawling and crying the whole time and I feel really guilty. Um, and yeah, there's no like I don't. I don't want to be punitive. I don't want to like, you know, well, make her feel a- bad just just to make her feel bad or something. So I don't I don't really understand what the purpose of it is, but we started doing it and I just keep doing it cuz I like to establish routines with her. It's a consequence. I mean, yeah. and also I'm not sure punitive is a bad thing. I mean, it might not work at the I, We've always done timeouts. I content like anything we've ever tried and I've talked about this on the show before in my brief like 1 2 3 magic phase. I don't know if you No, what is you, that? It's a book. You can buy it, but of course I never actually read it. I just started like counting one, two, three in my house and like trying to like glean what my sister-in-law told me about it. You read the back flap. It never worked, right. (laughs) Uh, But I think with most of this stuff, and maybe this is a defense mechanism on my part, but like the kids grow out of it. Like whatever the last thing, whatever the last discipline technique you were using before they stop throwing their massive tantrums or before they stop hitting you or whatever it is, you think that's the thing that worked. But really, they're just like, like you said, she's right. What she's doing right now like is what she's supposed to be doing. Then she'll grow out of it and she'll start doing something else. So I'm not sure if any of these things really work. But I do think across the board, like any from any of the experts we talked to on the show or if you talk to your pediatrician or any books that maybe you skim, they all do say some form of the same thing, which is like it is important for there to be consequences there are uh, there are different ways of setting up you know a system but like you can't just your kids can't just think anything goes uh so it sounds like you're i don't know sounds like you're doing a good job it also sounds like you're pretty chill about it well it all feels a little meta and performative to me like she she is just fundamentally a pretty mellow easygoing kid like the day she was born i remember looking at her and just thinking you have a high frustration tolerance, like you're patient. And I don't, you know, I was just projecting on her because she was a newborn. But I, there, there is a level of performance to what she's doing right now. Like when she pours her pasta on the floor and looks at me, like I project onto her like, oh, I'm 19 months old. This is developmentally appropriate for me to do this and drive you crazy right now. So I'm doing it. And then a few months I'll be doing something else. Like I know that sounds weird, but that's how it feels to me in the moment. Like we're in a stage play or something. And so like my role in it is also performed in response to her. So I don't know. I, 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 I sound like uh, like I'm, I don't know, alienated from my own life or something. No, 
I actually think that kind of detachment <laughs> but, is really good and will help. And I don't mean like I don't mean that you're not attached to your child, but like an understanding that like this is what's what this is what's supposed to be happening right now, and like you can perform consequences and say no or whatever, but you're not actually really mad. Yeah, I think that's super healthy and kind of hard to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I've ever really and truly lost my temper with her. I've raised my voice a few times in ways that I regretted. But yeah, for the for the most part, um, I've, I've tried to keep that somewhat detached calm. Um, I think the one time it's hard, it's hard to do that, though, is that there is this kind of existential tenor to some of her tantrums. <laughs> like once in a while, she'll like lay on the ground or lay on the floor and bawl about something. And it really feels like it's coming from the core of her being. She can't like have a toy or cross the street without holding my hand or something. And I, I wondered, you know, there's been a lot of talk, I'm, I'm sure, on your show as well about you know, when to ignore a tantrum, when to sympathize, when to intervene. You you said earlier that, you know, you could never really just like sit with Harry during a tantrum and like be with him in that moment. But what about one of Sam or Wally's like more manageable tantrums? Would you like sit and rub his back or would you just wait for it to be over? Or? I think I usually wait, wait them out. I mean, it kind, of, it kind of depends what it's over. Like a kid can be upset about a legit, first of all, legitimate and not legitimate is like right. a really hard line to draw with a two-year-old or whatever. But there can be something that really upsets a kid, like a you know a trouble sharing or a toy getting taken away by another kid or falling, even um, you know actually being hurt that then spirals like they're not actually really hurt anymore, but they can't stop crying. Like those are different from like you cut the apple in half when I didn't want the apple cut in half, and I'm just gonna like lose it for 45 <laughs> minutes. And I guess um, so. I treated those. I feel like I do treat those differently. I think I am like, I will rub your back and try to help you calm down if you're like really freaking out about something that like has the kernel. This is this is probably just doesn't make any sense, but it has like the kernel of a real thing. And if it's just absolutely crazy for a crazy reason, I don't know why I'm expecting my or was ever expecting my two-year-old to understand that, but I think I probably then did kind of, like, disengage. I don't necessarily – yeah, I, I don't think I would ever have been my um, instinct to, like, hug a kid in the middle of a horrible tantrum because – I don't know, because that would teach him that that's what gets his – that's what gets my love and attention. Mm-hmm. How much of your kids' personalities were completely in sharp relief and established by – toddlerhood and how much of them I mean as, as far as you can tell now a few years down the line and like how how much was it just you're a toddler now and this is what you're doing um, I think that was pretty established I mean Harry was tough he was a tough baby he was a tough toddler he like I said he threw these like massive fits and he's not he is not an easygoing kid he's awesome but he's like mm. totally not an easygoing kid the opposite of an easygoing kid and Sam was actually a really easy baby, but once he got into toddlerhood, he was pretty defiant. He was like the hitter and laugh kind of kid, mm-hmm. and he mm-hmm. is still that kid. <laughs> uh, so I think, you know, I don't know, like, I don't know how you can say, like, uh, Devin was born and was totally chill, and now she's becoming less chill. So which one is she? I don't really know. But I did find, I guess, by around two, two and a half, like, that stuck. Okay. I'm just going to keep pretending that she's chill and, like, continue There's living a benefit. in my own. There is a benefit to unchill. I mean, no. there are benefits to both. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, okay. Listeners, if you have thoughts about toddler mayhem, 
Write in. <laughs> if you have advice, if you think I said said wrong, you know, if I gave Jessica the wrong advice, let me know. And let me know what you're supposed to do when your kid always wants to take her diaper off, because that just flummoxes me. Yeah. I, I don't like, know I what to do. I on that one. Some people like duct tape them. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to do anything that's going to harm her skin or anything, but she just keeps taking the freaking thing off, and I don't know what to say. Maybe start potty training. <laughs> it's too early. Okay, so come to our Facebook page and tell us, uh, give us your best advice for toddler behavior. Okay, on to recommendations. Jessica. In the hallowed tradition of Stephen Metcalf of the Slate Culture Gab Fest, I am going to make a geographically specific recommendation, which is taking your toddler to Storm King Arts Center, a magnificent sculpture park plotted over 500 acres of rolling grassland in the lower Hudson Valley. I'm calling out Storm King in possibly contrarian Slate style because ostensibly it's the worst place to take a toddler. Um, And fair warning, you should have no illusions of actually seeing many of the monumental sculptures on display by the late of Richard Serra and David Smith and Barnett Newman and so many others. But if you can make peace with getting all the way to Storm King and not actually covering much ground with the small and steady person you have in tow, it's a totally zen and magical experience, or at least it has been the two times that we've gone. The first time we went, we didn't really stray much further than this enormous bright red painted steel uh, Alexander Calder sculpture called Five Swords, which Devin just wanted to explore endlessly. And now I feel like I have an intimacy and a knowledge of that piece of art that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, She was equally taken with another just gigantic steel sculpture uh, called Frog Legs by Marc de Suvero the other time we went. And she just loves running around the place. It has a very pastoral and slightly haunted and macabre vibe. It's like Wicker Man meets the opening credits of Little House on the Prairie. Um, So that's my recommendation. Storm King Art Center in the Hudson Valley, paradise for toddlers. Uh, I talk about going there every summer and we never do because John's always like, what's that? What is Storm King again? And then we just don't do it. So, And I've, I, I saw a picture that you um, you sent me a picture of you and Devin there that was really great. Uh, yeah, I love I mean, that's a great recommendation. And you do. You're saying you should have no – don't expect to actually like see the art. But it sounds like you do see the art. You just see it through – your you see kids. one piece of art. <laughs> Through your kid's eyes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, which is what parenting is all about. Okay, so I did not think I would ever say I want to recommend a poem that went viral on social media, but it turns out that I want to recommend a poem that went viral on social media uh, in the wake of the Orlando shooting. It's by Maggie Smith. And uh, Jessica, I actually know you saw it because I saw you like it on Facebook. Um, it's called Good Bones, and I will read it right now. It's pretty short. Good bones. Life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate, though I keep this from my children. For every bird, there is a stone thrown at a bird. For every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short, and the world is at least half terrible, and for every kind stranger, there is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I'm trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real shithole chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. Uh, it's a really beautiful poem, and Katie Waldman, uh, Slate Words correspondent, uh, did a short interview with the poet in the days after the Orlando shooting. We'll link to that on our Facebook page. So that is our show. 
Visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash fighting. Send us an email at slate.com to suggest guests or topics or tell us what we did or said wrong on today's show. Uh, Mom and Dad are fighting as part of the Panoply Network. Check out Panoply's full roster of shows at itunes.com slash panoply. Thanks to our producer, Ann Hepperman. Thanks to Steve Lichtai, the managing producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers, head of Panoply. Thanks so much to our guests, Nicole Hannah-Jones and my father-in-law, Tim Cook. Thanks so much for hosting with me, Jessica. Thank you, Allison. And thank you all for listening.